welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, and this week we're going to talk about Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union speech 2020, which was with 79 minutes, one of the longest since the tradition began a decade ago. Let's tune in for those of you who did not have time to listen to the speech and get some initial impressions. So for me, it is crystal clear, we need to build a stronger European health union. And to start making this a reality, we must now draw the first lessons from the health crisis. And we need to strengthen our crisis preparedness and management of cross-border health issues. The European Green Deal is our blueprint to make that transformation. At the heart of it is our mission to become the first climate-neutral continent in 2050. And on this basis, the European Commission is proposing to increase the 2030 targets for emission reduction to at least 55%. Das kommende Jahrzehnt muss Europas Digital Decade sein. Und wir brauchen einen gemeinsamen Plan für das digitale Europa, mit ganz klar definierten Zielen bis 2050. Und um das zu erreichen, muss Europa jetzt führen. Oder es wird lange anderen folgen müssen und es die dann für uns die Standards setzen. Without any doubt, there's a clear need for Europe to take clear positions and quick actions on global affairs. The relationship between the European Union and China, Europe must deepen and refine its partnerships with its friends and allies. And this starts with revitalizing our most enduring partnerships for our own interests and in the interest of the common good. We need new beginnings with old friends on both sides of the Atlantic and on both sides of the Channel. L'avenir sera que nous en ferons et l'Europe sera ce que nous Voulons. Vive l'Europe. Long live Europe. Long live Europa. I'm happy to welcome Alexander Stubb, who is a board member of ECFR. He's director of the European University Institute School of Transnational Governments in Florence, and is also somebody who's no stranger to the leadership of the European Union, whether as Prime Minister of Finland, as Foreign and Finance Minister of Finland, but also as a senior official in the European Commission and one-time member of the European Parliament. Also down the line, another person who I think has been part and parcel of the, the writing of many State of the Union speeches is Kolos Muedas, who is currently a trustee at the Kalus Garbankian Foundation in Lisbon, but is former European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation. Thank you very much both for, for joining. So Alex, maybe I can come to you first. What were your first reactions to, to the speech? You think that Ursula von der Leyen did a good job? Yeah, I do think it's actually quite a good speech. I mean, it's self-evident that these types of speeches are long and they're a bit sort of like a Christmas tree. But I think she hit all the right notes. I think it was important to start with an empathetic note uh, in the middle of the COVID crisis. She talks about empathy, bravery and a sense of duty. And then she's sort of in a very 
good way moves into the health sector, to digital, to uh, global affairs, to climate and other themes that she thinks are important are part of the commission's program. I, I think she's showing leadership on this, and I do think this was a very good State of the Union address. And may I add also that I know that a lot of preparation has gone into this in terms of consultation and discussion. So I, I, I think she did a good job. So Carlos, you were one of the stars at the last European Commission, though that had a lot of time advising on State of the Union speeches. How do you think she, she did compared to her predecessors? Hello, Mark and uh, Alex, and thank you so much uh, for being here. And I totally agree with uh, with Alex. These really all a very exciting moments, the days to come before uh, this speech. And, and I think that she uh, really touched the, the right notes on the speech. There was energy, there was storytelling, and there was concrete announcements, which is always very difficult in uh, the European Parliament because especially the concrete announcements, people try to avoid that, and it's always quite a shallow speech and very political, and she was quite to the point announcing very concrete things. And I thought that uh, she has an energy that is very empathetic with people, the way she tells the stories, uh, like when she talks of the two Italian girls at the end that uh, play tennis in, in the rooftops during the pandemic. And she really gets that very well. So so for me, if I had to give a grade, and I'm not a professor, Alex is the professor, I think I would definitely give her like 18 out of 20, or she was really good. So uh, I'm, I'm happy with the speech. Wow, very generous grading. So we're going to talk later on about this idea, which also von der Leyen launched of, of having a geopolitical commission and, and what it means and to what extent that was part of the speech. But maybe we could start with some of the big themes. And I think there were sort of three central themes that she talked about in terms of the, the recovery from COVID-19. And, the, and I think they were healthcare, the Green Deal and digital sovereignty. Why don't we run through those three? And health is obviously the, the most pressing issue on everyone's agenda at the moment. What do you think the, the most memorable parts of, of what she said on health were? And do you think that she sounded like somebody who was, was rising to the challenge? Because it's obviously an area where, which is of existential importance to all European citizens, but it's not an area where the EU has a huge amount of competence at the moment. Well, I think actually the European Union always needs a big project. You know, it's either been the single market or it's been the euro. And I think health is going to be the next one. And she's used this crisis in a very smart way because she says, and I quote, for me, it is crystal clear we need to build a stronger European health union. End of quote. And may I add that European health union has been written in capital letters. And then she goes on to talk about strength, crisis, preparedness and management. And then she says, boom, we will build a new European BARDA, an agency for biomedical advanced research and development. So, you know, she, she makes some rather bold proposals and she also adds on to it that, well, you know, she knows that this is not the prerogative or the competence of the European Union. But look what we did. When it all started, we were the ones who got people talking about the joint vaccines. We were the ones who were coordinating the homecoming of 600,000 people, etc., etc. And then she gives it a bang and says, our union is there to protect all. Uh, so I think the biggest initiative here is basically the idea to create the European Health Union. And I think that's quite bold. I'm not so sure so many social security and health ministries are going to be excited about this around Europe, but I sure am as a pro-European. 
I agree with Alex. I, I think that uh, the health side was extremely interesting. And, and I think that, to be frank, I mean, there was really the vaccine idea of getting everybody around the table, these 40 countries, where we were able at the European level to coordinate the raising of uh, almost 16 billion euros to produce a vaccine. I think that's leadership. That's really uh, geopolitical leadership somehow. And that is a big part of the job that she did and, and the political ability. I think that the announcement of Marda it's a fantastic one because people always talk about DARPA, the American Defense Agency for uh, Innovation and Research, which is an example around the world because you put a lot of resources, because you give freedom to the innovators. And she's saying, let's do the same as Americans do in terms of a defense agency for research. We'll do it for biomedical sciences and we will launch this BARDA. And she was not afraid of using the word BARDA, which is a very American way of putting it, but is a very effective way in terms of communications to announce such a big thing. So in, in that uh, part of the speech, I think that uh, she could get the message around the world in a very easy way just by using such a word like Barda and making that together with the G20 and everybody and announcing the Global Health Summit in Italy with Conte. So this was, was a good part of it. But uh, of course, I would say that unfortunately, she didn't really speak a lot about science in general. So it was very just related to health and not to science. And, and that's one of the, the problems for me on the multi-annual framework is that science is not there as it should. But, but I think on this part was very effective. I think Carlos touched a really good point there about geopolitics as well. And I, I know it's a theme that the European Council of Foreign Relations deals with a lot. And I think we should start looking at geopolitics on a much broader basis. And that's exactly what the president does here. Remember, she talked about a geopolitical commission early on in her program. And to a certain extent, this agency is exactly that. It understands geopolitics in terms of geo-health, geo-economics, a much sort of broader concept. And I think that's a very shrewd and a smart move on her part. And it was interesting that she, she made the case in a very pointed way by saying that Europe doesn't turn to self-serving propaganda, which seems to be an attack on China or a Europe first policy, which is an attack on, on Trump's approach to, to vaccines. Should we go to the, the kind of second big theme, which has also potentially got big geopolitical implications and is obviously very central to the way that she sees her commission working, which is the area of the Green Deal. And she said in that that she'd like 37% of the new 750 billion euro recovery fund known as Next Generation EU to be spent on the Green Deal and that 30% of, of Next Generation money is going to be raised by green bonds. How revolutionary is that? Do you think people were surprised about that? And it also it comes the day after she got the European Commission to propose an increase in the 2030 targets for emission reduction to uh, at least 55%. I think that uh, this was really the big thing to go and propose this reduction of 55%. Of course, this is one of these announcements that um, is very macro. And so the problem and uh, the devil is on the detail. But she was able to basically please the right wing of the parliament and the left wing of the parliament when she did the announcement. It was very subtle because she knows that a part of the parliament is not happy because they wanted a 60% reduction at least. But 
in the other part of the parliament, they're not happy because they think it's too much. Then she was able to go a little bit in the middle and get to the 55 and say, look, I have 170 business leaders and investors that wrote to me saying that I'm doing the right thing. So in one way, she was going left to more the green side of the parliament. And the other side, she says, look, but I have the backing of all these business leaders that believe with me that we're getting into the right direction. But, you know, I I think that, to be frank, going from 40 to 55 percent is a great step, but it's really rhetorical. Then how do you get there and how do you make the real difference? That's another story. So she will have a lot of trouble in the next couple of months when she will try to update all the legislation to be fit and to uh, be able to to do these reductions. So we will see how it goes. But it was really the big announcement that everybody was waiting for. I think Carlos is right on track on this. There's one really interesting sentence that you said, and it's going to go a little bit unnoticed. But she says here that the emissions dropped 25% since 1990, Mm -hmm. uh, when our economy grew by more than 60% at the same time. So she's making sort of decoupling the idea that a growing economy is somehow juxtaposed or contradictory to economic growth. And then she says, and this is really important, the difference is we now have more technology, more expertise and more investment. So this is exactly what Carlos talks about, sort of pleasing the business side of it. And I think this is something the European Commission needs to understand. Yes, it does legislation, but at the end of the day, all of this legislation and all of these targets, they can only give direction, but they will not solve the problem. The problem will be solved, I think, with investments and innovation. There's also one interesting thing that, you know, as a former EIB vice president, I don't know if I'm concerned, but I look at it a little bit skeptically. It says that we will, uh, that the commission will set raise green bonds. Well, you know, the EIB started green bonds, the first ones in the world, 2008 to 2010, and now has a big market on that. I'm not so sure the commission should go into bond raising, but, you know, that's not my problem, but that's something that will be discussed. Then a couple of interesting things, I think, on the hydrogen valleys. <laughs> then there's one thing. I don't know what you think about this, Carlos, but you know, she's setting up a new European Bauhaus. I hope that's not product placement for Bauhaus, you know, <laughs> DIY kind of stuff. But she wants to create a, a space where architects and artists and students and engineers and designers work together. And I think this is really good sort of transnational kind of stuff. So n- nice little details. Can we stay with the green bonds theme for, for a, a, uh, a few moments? Because I mean, mm-hmm. that, it was obviously one of the hugely controversial questions which came up during the, the discussions about the recovery plan. And I know that certainly in Finland, there's a lot of skepticism about the idea of the EU taking on debt and, and socializing debt. And this topic will carry on being very controversial within the EU. But maybe you can say a bit about why you think it's a bad idea, Alex. Well, I don't think it's a bad idea from an ideological or European perspective. And and please don't equate me with Finland or the current government. I'm a former prime minister and happy to be that. I can sit on the fence and do my own European commentary. I have always actually been for, uh, in the heart of my heart, for the mutualization of debt. And I think this whole discussion about it is, to a certain extent, a little bit old-fashioned because we have, throughout history, have mutualized debt anyway. 
the EIB is a great example of that. You know, we have 14 billion euros of paid in capital, 250 billion of callable capital, and all of that is actually mutual. Now, the thing I'm skeptical about is, can the commission function as a bank? And here is where I think, you know, we have an instrument for that. It could be that I'm a little bit protective of my old job and the rest of it. But I think the EIB could be doing this for the commission rather than the commission doing it itself. But again, this is just institutional strife, nothing more than that. So I'm not against the idea as such. I think I agree with Alex. I think that one of the things that uh, happens in the commission is that we don't have the expertise in financial terms to uh, raise bonds or uh, to uh, do any kind of credit. That's what the EIB does. And the EIB is the, the European investment bank that is the core business of doing exactly that. So I, I think that I would uh, tend to agree with, uh, with Alex because of my experience in in the commission where we've tried, but then we don't have the expertise. I mean, there's no one in the services of the commission with expertise in terms of going to the markets, uh, doing credit. So these, I hoped, and it's uh, interesting because the way I read it, Alex, I thought that the EIB would be involved, but of course you can also read these and uh, it's actually the commission doing it. But I think it will be very difficult for the commission to doing it alone. They will need the EIB and that's for sure. But uh, again, the, the devil will be on the detail, but I agree with you. It's going to be set up in the end, but I hope that the commission calls Bernard de Mazier uh, in the EIB. He knows how to do green bonds. He is Mr. Exactly. Green bonds. <laughs> Exactly. And do you think that these green bonds will become a real European safe asset, which could allow the euro to become a much more serious global currency? Yeah, it's a bit, you know, partly, but only a small part of it. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't push it that far. But I, I, I do think that, you know, one of the geopolitical aims of the European Commission uh, and, of course, the European Central Bank at the end of the day is to make the euro not only into a strong currency, and here I don't mean the value of it, but globally a respected currency, but also an independent currency that can be used as an instrument in foreign policy, for instance, sanctions. So the other big geopolitical implication of what she said on the Green Deal was about the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism which she put both in terms of, of trying to bring Europeans together because there are obviously big divergences amongst member states on, on how keen they are in terms of these carbon pricing mechanisms. But also, it obviously has enormous implications for our relationship with China. I think that that will be very difficult. I think it's a great idea because, I mean, if you want to have fair competition you have to make it in a way that if someone is producing something cheaper because they're not really respecting the rules that we respect in Europe in terms of environment, you have to adjust for that. So you have to compete with them, but adjust the price because if not, you'll never be able to produce the products at the same price. It will be more expensive. And so you have to adjust with the tax or adjust with the, with the pricing. But I think that this is one of the things that have two problems. One is uh, to be done in a compatible way with the WTO. That will be a big fight. It's not an easy thing to do in the detail. And it's interesting because, uh, and Alex will remember that, that I think this is something that was already there when the French president Sarkozy 
tried to put something in the similar lines and he never he was never able to do it. And that's why I think that in the speech, she talks about it more in a kind of a wishful thinking way than on, so it's kind of subtle. So she, she just says it and, and then she, she goes away from it. So I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be possible, but because the complexity of doing it, it's, it's huge. But yes, it's, it's a good idea, I would say. So the other big theme, which both of you have been thinking about a lot, is this idea of digital sovereignty. And that was a major uh, focus of the speech. Von der Leyen looked at three kind of pillars which she claimed are important for digital sovereignty, data usage, artificial intelligence and digital infrastructure. What do you think about that part of the speech? Look, I, I think on that bit of the speech, I think that one, the idea of talking about digital sovereignty is very good. I think that Thierry Breton has been fantastic at uh, working that idea that is such so obvious. I mean, we need that digital sovereignty. But in the speech, to be frank, I haven't seen a lot of things that are new. I mean, the uh, look at the European cloud that comes from the past and in terms of artificial intelligence, the focus on artificial intelligence that also comes from the past. The only thing that was really new was the secure European e-identity which is a good thing. I mean, I think that we need that, a proposal to have a secure e-identity. So it's good because she gives like a lot of importance in the speech, but I didn't see anything that was like new or groundbreaking. And to be frank, Paul, there's nothing new and groundbreaking. So it's just a question of narrative and putting it all together. But so uh, that was my view. But because probably I was too involved in all these points that she talks and she kind of repackages it but it's a good repackaging. And what do you think, Alex? You've been a big champion for the idea of, of Europe getting its act together on these issues. I've done it ever since we were sort of the champions of telecoms in the 1990s and, and early 2000. And I, I think on the digital side, we lost it a long time ago. And if you recall, I think it was only in 2007 when we started seeing the digital internal market creeping into European Council conclusion language. And I, I think that Carlos actually was the one that should be given credit for pushing the agenda as hard as it did during his uh, mandate. I agree that this is pretty much a repackaging. It's a good repackaging. I, you know, data is the new gold or the new oil, whatever you want to call it. The big question is, you know, are we really going to be able to mine industrial data and be as good at it as uh, she claims? This idea on a European cloud is, is not new. She says that it will be based on Gaia X. Fine, you know, live with that. Then the artificial intelligence side, you know, here, my big worry is that, you know, we, we, I'm not saying that we, we missed the train when it left the station, but, you know, the Chinese woke up to this when DeepMind beat the champion in Go about five years ago and looked at the investments that they have on that. And this is really a classic case where you really need massive, massive European investment. And as Carlos said a little bit earlier, you know, why then in the MFF negotiations were a lot of these investments sort of cut down and money put, put elsewhere? I guess there are political reasons for that. So I think she's going to be in a little bit of an uh, uphill battle on this. This e-identity thing is, is fairly interesting, I think. It almost sounds Estonian to a certain extent. And then one final observation, which, you know, I hope I won't get scolded for, but do you notice that in the whole speech, she doesn't mention the common agricultural policy once, at least in my reading, but, but she does mention farming in agriculture linked to artificial intelligence. And 
she mentions uh, the countryside and rural areas being revitalized with better infrastructure and broadband. So suddenly agriculture in the European sphere becomes very much sort of linked into the digital side. And I don't know, je suis pas sûr si c'est une bonne idée, I think someone is saying somewhere. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. <laughs> One of the other things she didn't mention, interestingly, was the idea of the geopolitical commission, which was her big catchphrase. And there wasn't very much discussion about common defense and security policy. How do you explain the absence of overt, more kind of traditional foreign policy things from the speech in relative terms? Don't you think that's kind of a good thing? Because to a certain extent, if you keep on saying that you're a geopolitical commission, it usually veils the fact that you're not. But look what she's doing here. You know, she's talking very much in the beginning about the crucial role and in many ways success of what Europe did in the COVID-19 crisis and how it also helped the outside world. To me, that's a geopolitical statement. Now, if the line between war and peace is blurred and digital is a big part of it, well, she talks about the digital part of things. She talks about climate. That's in my way, my, my thinking also to a certain extent geopolitical. And I do think that she's actually fairly tough from a geopolitical perspective on some of the areas that, that we've talked mm-hmm. about, you know, on Turkey, on Belarus. She talks about the European Magnitsky Act, etc. So, you know, I, I think she's doing more of the action than talking about geopolitics. I really agree with, with Alex. I mean, she was quite tough uh, on Russia. She was also, in terms of China, she was also very clear and uh, about how trade has to be fair and reciprocity. And so I think that she was actually on the, on the words. She was quite tough. And, and I think I agree with Alex that sometimes the speeches on the past, you would talk a lot about it, but it was just talking. And here there's actions that are uh, geopolitical by nature, that are not the ones that one is used to hear about. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting speech. I think he's, uh, that's, uh, I agree with Alex. That's exactly because of that. That is interesting. One thing she did mention, which, which President Juncker mentioned beforehand, and which always comes back in these speeches, is the idea of QMV on foreign policy, which is clear why she's calling for it because so many uh, European statements get blocked and watered down as a result of the need for unanimity. But it's also clear that you need unanimity to introduce QMV. So why do you think that made another appearance, Alex? Has there been a speech in which the president of the European Commission has not mentioned QMV on foreign policy? Of course, she has to do that. And I, I think she's right to do it. Having said that, I think no matter whether you have QMV or unanimity at the end of the day, you need to find a common tone on all the big issues anyway. But it, it's something that it's a reoccurring theme and I think it should be as well. Okay, maybe one question of, for us to, to kind of reflect on is this whole question of the rule of law, which she did mention, which is obviously a very difficult issue given political developments in in a lot of the member states particularly in Poland and in Hungary and it's one which is going to come to a head in, in the discussions about how the recovery plan works how seriously should we take what she said about that was it a good sign or do you think it was weak compared to to the tough stance that the last european commission took on these issues i think that she knows that Polish cannot be as tough as we were. And uh, uh, to be frank, when I, I heard the speech, then I read the speech and I barely saw it in the speech. And so it really goes a little bit unnoticed. And I think that is because she knows 
that it's probably not possible to do it in the way that we thought at the time with Juncker we would be able to do it because she owes also her own position as president of the commission to all these countries and some of them talking about Hungary and Poland will never allow that to happen. So it's one of the things that it becomes a wishful thinking. We talk about it like the QMV, but I'm afraid that uh, nothing will happen really. Yeah, it's it's been one of my sort of reoccurring themes because I think, you know, if we don't have values that we stick to or believe in, we have very little left. And I, I do think that we're a value-based union. I, I'd probably put a slightly more positive spin on this. You know, she does say that she attaches the highest importance of, on the rule of law. And then she moves into to mentioning a few sort of rather sensitive issues, you know, in a way in which you don't hear them spoken of anymore in countries where you usually hear them spoken of, like the United States or, say, the UK. So, you know, she talks about fighting racism. She says, hate is hate, and no one should be able have to put up with it. She says that because in this union, fighting racism will never be optional. So, you know, she even sets up an anti-race coordinator. Mm-hmm. So I think this gives a value-based and, and, uh, argument. And then she also Uh, goes into LGBT rights, which I think is really cool and good for her. So, you know, and she says that that being yourself is not your ideology, it's your identity. So this is very much sort of a value-based finish that she touches upon in the end. But of course, the approach is a little bit different. She doesn't point the finger at at member states, but she does give a clear message what the commission stands for. Perhaps this is my silver lining. I don't know. With, uh, with Alex, I was more thinking about the way we worked it in the past commission, which was yeah. really to find the mechanism that will sanction member states that will not respect the rule of law or reducing structural funds that would go to those countries. And that is wishful thinking because I think we'll never be able to do that, at least in this. But, but she uh, really talks about things that are very important, as you say, at LGBT uh, rights and then all, all those points that probably in our commission, they were not as vocally put into the speeches. Well, it's been great talking to you about the speech. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Alex, you've been reading a lot of books over the summer. What What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, actually, my, my next book that I'm going to read has been translated uh, from Spanish uh, into English. And it's by one of uh, our professors here at the uh, EUI. And he's a real superstar in, in, in the Spanish academic scene. It's Daniel Inerarity. And the book is called Governance in the New Global Disorder, Politics for a Post-Sovereign Society. The reason I'm going to read it is that I'm myself working on a book which tries to make sense of the new global disorder. And I think this will be a useful one for that. Fantastic. What about you, Carlos? I I had the chance to take a little look to what Alex is doing, and I think it will be a great read uh, what he's writing. So I'm waiting for it to be uh, on the the bookshops and I will immediately buy it. 
I've uh, also uh, been reading the new book of uh, Philippe Aguillon, which is a, a great French economist. He's uh, launching a book on innovation and innovation as really the engine for productivity and the future and what are the policies in different countries. And there's a great book that will come also to the bookshops very soon. Read two uh, very nice books. One, uh, the one from BHL, Bernard-Henri Lévy, on ce virus qui nous rend fou. And it's, uh, it's a real small reading about what's going on and um, uh, the power that we're giving to certain parts of the society and the effect that that will have in our mental health. And what else? Kishore Mabubani has China won. It's always a very nice reading. Great. So on my bookshelf, I also read some of the early things that Alex was writing and very warmly recommend that. And we'll definitely have to get Alex back on to talk about the book when it comes out. I've also just started reading a very interesting book called Taming Sino-American Rivalry by a brilliant young Chinese academic called Zhang Feng and a slightly less young but also brilliant American academic called Richard LeBeau. So we'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to the podcast and if you have, please put up lots of references on your social media page or ours and give us a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you use to download the podcast. But for now, from Alex Stubb, Carlos Muedas, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Reed.